Welcome to the Corrymeela podcast. My name is Padraig O'Tuma. In this first year of Brexit and a century after the partition of Ireland, I'm in conversation with special guests exploring contemporary Irishness and Britishness through the lenses of history, politics, art and theology. And this week, I'm delighted that my guest is the world-renowned guitarist The Edge from the world-renowned band U2. He was born David Evans to Welsh parents and grew up in Dublin before finding global fame with the band he co-formed. He talks to me about music and national identity and faith and art as resistance, dealing with criticism and his personal interest in reconciliation. In ways, you might say I was somewhat inoculated against faith by my early church experiences. Identity and belonging were things that I constantly had to deal with and try and navigate myself. If you get into the minutiae of politics in music, you're immediately, for some people, you're crossing a line. You can't ignore everything because there is actually valid criticisms within the things that have been written about us. And personally, I want to know. I'd love to fully understand what it's like to be of a nationalist persuasion and really like not just present day, but generations of nationalists or conversely, generations of loyalists. We always talk about the collective ego of you 2 that we have allowed our individual egos to be subsumed into the band ego. Hello, my name is Padraig Otuma and you're listening to the Corrymeela podcast. With me today is the multiple award-winning lead guitarist of U2, The Edge. Edge, thanks very much for joining us. It's great to be on this, Padraig. Always, always a pleasure. Where are you talking to us from today, Edge? Um, I am currently in California um, in a house, a little house in Malibu that myself and my wife bought about 20 years ago. Um, it's 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 you know a very nice little place but it's not it's 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 not an enormous house but i i love it i love its kind of closeness and it's uh it's a simple house lovely did you ever think you'd be spending as much time in that one house as you have in the last year um it's been a bit of a revelation for me because the last 5 years we've been traveling so much and the lockdown was enforced obviously on us all um but i wasn't i didn't think i would enjoy it as much as i have and i, I keep finding people who have actually enjoyed the lockdown I, I i mean part of it was luck in our case we weren't supposed to be touring we weren't supposed to be making videos or involved in any group activity if anything this was a, a phase for our band where we were supposed to be writing songs and mm working on on future projects and that's exactly what I've been doing so I know I'm maybe unique or fairly unique in that regard it didn't didn't spoil any plans but just the travel just not traveling so much is has uh, and being grounded in in one or two locations I've spent quite a lot of time obviously in Dublin as well but uh, it's been it's, there's something good for the soul about about being in one place for for a long time there is indeed. I haven't been in the same place for this length of time for um, 20 years. Mm. Um, 
we met a few years ago and the first thing you said to me was uh, that you had an interest in um, reconciliation. So you were keen to talk about Corimila. And then mm. you mentioned that you um, have Welsh parents, um, mm. Welsh Presbyterian parents, and mm-hmm. that that had given you a particular experience of Irishness and Britishness and Presbyterianism. Um, mm. And that's where the conversation started. So I'd love to start there again, because I've thought about how curious that is. Is it true mm. that you had a Welsh accent at home and an Irish accent um, for your friends when you were younger? I, I did. Um, not that I was necessarily aware of it, but my parents were, would, would, would tell me about it, certainly when I was a bit older. And I, I do remember being teased by my Irish friends about certain vowel sounds that were, were clearly different. And um, it became, you know, a sort of unconscious thing to to sound like my friends and to, to belong, to, to feel part of the gang. And um, so to, to this day, I have a very strange kind of accent that's hard to pin down. I mean, if I, I couldn't even begin to describe it myself. People think it's very Irish, but it's not typically Irish. Um, but nor is it, there's, there's no hint of Welsh in it either. Yeah. My father had spent a lot of time in London as a child, so he actually didn't have a strong Welsh accent, but my mother did. So um, I'm I'm just a crazy mixed up kid really in, that, <laughs> in, in that regard. Yeah. People think my mother's Welsh, but that's not because she has a mild accent. It's because she's from Cork and she talks like yeah. this. So they hear the sing song and think that she's Welsh. But yeah. that's not yeah. It's it's funny. The Welsh, the Cork and the Jamaican yeah. accents have certain sing song characteristics. They do, yeah. Is interesting. Do you think that the attunement to accent that you had clearly somewhere in your unconscious, you were hearing an accent at home and then hearing an accent with friends and modifying and being influenced with that. Do you think that led to music or was partly because you were intuitively musical anyway? Because it is a listening to music that is an accent. Yeah, Um, certainly music was something, music and rhythm were two things that I was fascinated with from a very young age. And um, I do remember playing biscuit tins to the music on the the TV test card. That's how, that's how interested I was. That, I mean, it wasn't that that music was particularly interesting, but I loved the sensation of playing along hmm. and creating rhythms in time with the music that was on the test card. Yeah. That was at a very young age. That's probably, you know, three years old, four years old. Um, and I think hearing, listening for sure was something that um, I did intently from a young age. Um, and I was, I used to mimic accents. I was, I was fascinated with them. I, I would, um, as, as a young kid, I would amuse my, my parents and my siblings by doing Australian accents or <laughs> American accents, um, London accents. I was very interested in, in how different they all were. And, yeah. and Dublin accents, I mean, if you've spent time in Dublin, district by district, the accents are so varied and fascinatingly so. And one word, like the word orange, you know, depending on what part of the city, you might have something like orange or orange. I mean, such a wide variety of pronunciations of such a simple word. That always fascinated me. 
Um, in preparation for this, I looked up the current um, information about the Welsh Presbyterians, and there aren't that many of them. It it was known as the Calvinistic Methodist Church as well, and it has um, mm. 20,000 members. I had never known that there were Presbyterians in Wales, but they sound like an extraordinary history. Um, but um, that must have been a strange dislocation because Irish Presbyterianism is very different to that. What was, where did your family find some kind of congregational connection once you moved to Dublin? Well, I think it was a little bit of a compromise. I think my mother was brought up Baptist and my dad was Presbyterian, but there was no Baptist church within a five mile radius. So so they opted to, to join the Presbyterian congregation. And, and you're absolutely right that, that there was a, a marked difference. I noticed it myself as a kid, because if we went back to Wales, as we did occasionally, we went to my father's church, the one he went to when he was a kid. The difference was the degree of, of uh, I would say, joy and uh, engagement. There was the music itself was so inspiring um, when, when you went to Welsh Chapel. In Dublin, it was a much drier experience. Um, and... I didn't really take to it, to be honest. I know that, um, you know, the church went through different phases. I think latterly it, it became much more joyful and, and less dry, but I found it not that inspiring. And in fact, it didn't stimulate any interest. I I, I didn't develop a faith really through church. In, in, in ways you might say I was somewhat inoculated against faith by my early church experiences. Um, I thought I knew what it was about and I, I just didn't click with it. Um, I think I probably also was aware of a sort of mild sectarianism that was going on because when you're a, a kid growing up, um, you're just interested in social opportunities. You're interested in who, who the cool kids on the street. So I was totally blind to the sectarian issues socially, never, was an issue at all. But when I would go to our church services, I could tell that it was a, it was like a small little group, a little um, ghetto in, in some ways. And everyone seemed to be the same, the same mentality, same way of dressing, similar attitudes. And it didn't really attract me. I must say, I, I, I found other people much more fun much more full of life and seemed to have somewhat ossified you know that the the whole sort of scene and so yeah it was a it was a funny experience to to find your place growing up you know not you, you, identity and belonging were things that i i constantly had to um deal with and and uh and try and navigate myself to try and find the answers to to who I was and how I how I could connect with this place that I was living in. And what seems to be so interesting is that um, from an early age, you, rather than looking for those things in a national identity, not to say you didn't have national identities, you've got a few, or in a religious identity, you seem in other interviews to speak about music as this thing that converted you to an imagination. Um, mm. I have a friend who grew up in... Um, Sudanese refugee camps. He was one of the last boys of Sudan and he was, you know, 
marched, I don't know how many hundreds of miles it was when he was 11. And he lived from the age of 11 till about 22 or 23 in all kinds of refugee camps back and forth across the Sudanese border with other places. And each one of them would be taken over by militias. And I was interviewing for a thing and he said um, that he started to go to church in those camps. And I said, you know, what was it about religion that interested you? And he said, it wasn't religion. It was music. In fact, like he speaks a, a bunch of languages and he deliberately did this beautiful thing where he said it was the musics that influenced him. There was something mm. about music that gave him a deep sense of belonging and identity. Um, when I hear his story, I think of your story too, the way that music seems to have been a language in which you became fluent early and have never stopped speaking. Mm. I think that's true. And I think for me also, the, the music to be found in churches could be unbelievably powerful and, and affecting and um, told much more eloquently of, of the faith of the parishioners than, than anything else. And um, it seemed there was, on the one hand, this celebratory, exaltive expression of faith and then in this other context, a kind of much more dour and, and joyless um, expression. And I just couldn't, couldn't connect with, with one, but the other was fascinating. And again, the entry point, yes, you're right, was the music hmm. um, and the singing. And I actually remember Bono sharing with me a story of when he was probably about 15, was on a holiday in in Wales and went on one Sunday morning to chapel and was swept away by the music by the singing and he joined in with gusto and he remembers one of the first affirmations of him as a singer occurred right there and then when people in the row ahead of him turned around and like gave him the big thumbs up as <laughs> as he was letting rip um but that that's that was um the music for me was was key, definitely key. Um, the American poet Audre Lorde said, um, poetry is not a luxury. Um, I think you can say the same thing about music. You know, music isn't just an entertainment that you do in the evening times or just to have something enjoyable, that it seems to be something primal in us. Mm. What is the um, what is the necessity of music in you? And obviously, you know, you've made an entire career, successful career as a musician. What is it that you know about the necessity of music in populations of people? I I agree that it is somehow hardwired in a, in a way that language is not. Um, so all I can say is in, in my life, absolutely. Um, it, it's been a, a way for me to receive and to, to, to share deep, deep emotions, um, in that I couldn't convey in any other form. Um, I think they say music as a form is, you know, other, other artists are jealous of, of how powerful music can be. You know, if you're a visual artist, a sculptor or in other, any, any other art form, and I get that because because it does have that ability to communicate deep, deep emotion. And um, I think it's probably, from an anthropological point of view, it's probably predates language. Um, and it does seem to 
trigger parts of the brain that are beyond the sort of the rational frontal lobe that sort of conscious brain it seems to go into the subconscious it seems to stimulate um a different part of the brain and um i i think that has been studies done on it on that basis that it it, it does light up other areas so i i'm i'm still just kind of discovering you know <laughs> i feel like it's there's no end to what you can learn and discover about it, but it does seem to be a form that will reveal the musician and, and the singer. It reveals them in their expression. And so, you know, the deep, the deep sort of emotional pain of, of a, of a people's experience is, is evident in their music. Uh, the, the the joy also the celebratory um, defiance is 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 evident in their music and so it's no um, I don't think it's it's, it's it's an accident that some of the most uh, evocative powerful music comes from for instance African Americans who've been through these generational struggles and you know their their music and particularly their gospel music is so powerful because it, you know the the message of the gospel and the message of the Bible, if you have grown up in an African-American um, family, is so much more vital. And, you know, the the, the, the story of the Exodus, um, you know, the words of Christ means so much more. And I think that that, that kind of comes through in their music. When I was um, 15 or 16, I remember witnessing a kind of a cross-border argument about you. There was Baptists from Belfast and Baptists from Cork arguing about whether the edge was a proper Christian or not. <laughs> now, I was I was their Catholic friend who they were hoping to convert. So I knew that according to them, I was probably on the way to hell and mm. they didn't know I was gay. I knew I was gay. And my guess is, is had they known that they might have sent me to hell quicker. <laughs> um, I know that the question of religion has been present in so much of your work. You know, mm. there's there's texts quoted in in Lakehard's for um, albums. There's references to religion, sometimes endorsing it, sometimes critiquing it throughout your work. Um, these days, what questions or what curiosities are you bringing to the question of religion and public life in your own mm. life as well as in your art? Well, I think that I long ago had to accept that religion was flawed, that, that um, whenever people try to explain the inexplainable, express the inexpressible in some kind of rules-based um, formal way, it's always going to have shortcomings. And um, so, once you once you accept that there is no perfect religious persuasion there's no perfect theology there's no perfect expression of these ideas then then i think you can start to just look upon it as well what's the best what's the most appropriate and i think it comes down to the people so for me um i i'm completely um agnostic when it comes to the the question of what is the best 
form of religion and faith. I, I find great wisdom and, and great insight in all forms of Christianity, in in, in Judaism, in, in Buddhism. Um, and I think that the pursuit seems to be, so far in my experience, similar. And about the Muslim faith as well, by the way, the similar attempt to reach out to something beyond this, a greater, a higher power, something of the divine. So, you know, and, and it, I, I'm, I'm just open and, and it tends to be for me, you know, I find somebody who I believe is, is asking the right questions and, and has wisdom to offer. And I'll happily take counsel and take, take a blessing from, from somebody from any religious persuasion if if i believe they have that um that that gift to, to give me so that's kind of my current situation and and so i've been outside organized religion for years but still consider myself to be uh, a seeker i consider myself to be a christian but i also would have to point out that jesus was jewish so maybe i should be able to claim to be of that persuasion as well you know there's there's um there's so much overlap. I think it's it sort of becomes ridiculous to have to stick within one way of thinking and seeing the scriptures and not allow yourself to to get, gain insight from all sources. Yeah, I was looking at um, you know some of your recent work, um, songs of innocence and experience, a line from Blake. And in Blake's work, Songs of Innocence and Experience, um, he is speaking about redemption, but also um, religious hypocrisy and social reform. And the more I was reading Blake's Songs of Innocence and Experience, the more I understood that that was a that was a title that was particularly appropriate for the kind of work that seems to interest you, um, with critique as well as with a certain hope for hopefulness, that there might be a story that can help us, but that we can't be naive about the fact that that religious story has oft also been destructive at times. Mm, I think that's true. Um, again, good intentions, you know, <laughs> I've been reading a lot about the, um, the the sort of the the early period of Methodism and its adoption in the United States of America, which is really the beginning of what you might call the modern evangelical movement, uh, the nonconformist religious movement that involved um, Methodists and um, George Whitfield, who was the great, the first evangelist to, to take his sermons outdoors, because a lot of churches um, didn't like the ideas that were being um, put forward and actually barred him from from preaching in their building so he went outdoors um and uh it's it's a fascinating fascinating sort of history of mm. of how um you know that that flower and the great awakening really changed society and in, in in at the time in a really great way but it had limitations you know these these um, ideas were revolutionary of, of their time, and and they had people for the first time take personal responsibility in their relationship with the divine. They inspired people to read the Bible themselves and to 
to really make it a personal journey rather than the intercessor of a priest, yeah. which had been the previous idea. Um, but when it came to social justice, as much as they were, they included African-Americans in, in their churches and they, and it really kickstarted black um, church in America, that, that movement, they still didn't have the imagination to, to, to think beyond slavery as a, as an institution. So George Whitfield had a, an orphanage that he set up in Bethesda, Georgia. And initially Georgia had no slaves. It was um, set up by the Quakers named after George III. And it was a sort of visionary utopian concept. This colony would have no, no slaves, but economically it started to really fall behind and struggle. So George Whitfield actually lobbied the the the, the governor of, of the Georgia colony to change the statute, to change the law, to allow slavery to come to Georgia, and in fact was successful and ended up bringing and hire and getting slaves for his orphanage. <laughs> so it's like, you know, if you, no matter how inspired um, the movement, no matter how well-intentioned, you can always, in, particularly in retrospect, look back and go, they they just didn't get it. They were, they only went halfway. They didn't really. So, so I think it's an ongoing thing. I think each generation um, is is built upon the, the good of the previous, and um, hopefully can add a new chapter of of greater enlightenment and, and a greater sense of how we should live with each other. Carmila is Ireland's oldest peace and reconciliation organisation. Working with thousands of people a year, Corimila supports groups to deepen inclusion, peace and belonging. And later in this episode, we'll hear more from The Edge about his interest and support in the reconciliation work of Corimila. The fact that it exists is like a beacon. You know, it's like it's so important, I think. Really, really crucial. These remotely recorded podcasts come from our kitchen table to yours because we can't be together in the same room talking about these important topics in this important year. So if you want to take this conversation further, we've got some discussion and reflection questions for you and a full transcription too. You can find those on our website, corimila.org forward slash podcast or linked in our show notes. You're listening to the Corimila podcast. My name is Padrigo Tuma, and with me today is the legendary Edge from the world-renowned band U2. Much of what you're talking about here in terms of a curiosity about religion, even your curiosity to read about um, Methodism in the United States, so much of that circles around the, the question about the word God. You seem to push yourself over and over. Like there's, there's lines from one particular song that really interested me. Peace on Earth, you know, it comes from All That You Can't Leave Behind, an album that is that has a lot of hope in it. Um, but Peace on Earth 
um, is referring to the Oma bomb in 1998. And there's a line, their lives are bigger than any idea because some of the victims of that bomb were, are named. And it seems to be that religion there is a big idea that you're saying people's lives are bigger than a big idea. And even a limited view of God, that people's lives are bigger than the idea of a limited name of God. Um, you seem to keep mm. on be curious about pushing these things out in response to troubles that you see around you. Yeah, I think growing up in Ireland, um, obviously the the troubles and and questions of um, nationalism and unionism were were ever present. And I guess we all in the band, you know, we all instinctively felt that. Um, to resort to to violence was was always going to um, be a failure, um, a failure in the present and a failure in the future. And and the, the idea, the, the the thought that you would justify taking somebody else's life based on your idea that that's that's not it doesn't have democratic support. It's it's like you're imposing your idea through violence on on a community it just to us it always seemed like cockeyed and and just so wrong so yeah i i think we we still would hold on to those uh, those convictions that ideas have to serve people and the idea that um that they are the highest um the highest priority and that the people can be sacrificed for those ideas we just vehemently disagree with and um so it was difficult at times because uh, you know i guess if you get into the minutiae of politics in in music you, you're immediately for some people you're crossing a, a line and um it does it does incite some people to to kind of walk away and i do remember on on one occasion early on after we recorded the the war album which had the song sunday bloody sunday we actually for the first time ever i think the album might not even have been out might or might have just come out we played belfast and um obviously we were a bit nervous <laughs> playing sunday bloody sunday in belfast so Bono, without saying anything to us beforehand, he just got on the mic and he just said, this this next song is not a rebel song, but I just want to say, if you, do, if you don't like it, we'll never play it again. And this is called Sunday Bloody Sunday. And um, the place went absolutely bananas. Um, but we saw 10 people walk out, immediately just turn around and walk straight out of the building and um, realized, wow, okay, you know, music can be divisive, particularly when you're when you're going to talk about those and reject those ideas that that are that form part of people's identity. You know, it's it, it's difficult. Yeah, because they can feel attacked mm -hmm. by that, even though you're making exactly. valid points. But nonetheless, you understand that the music opens up the heart and therefore the jab to the heart can feel even stronger. Yeah, we got a lot of pushback from, you know, the, the hardline nationalists during those those years, because I guess we were probably costing, costing them support, costing them donations from Irish Americans who thought that um, the struggle was still the same struggle 
that had always been going on. Um, and we were, we were just saying, no, it's not, it's not. So you continually do find ways, maybe less to be party political, but nonetheless to be political in what you're doing. Does that always come with a sense of risk for you? I think there's always a risk. Yeah. But, um, I mean, I, I remember some occasions we, we performed Mothers of the Disappeared in Santiago in Chile. Um, and we brought some of the Madres onto stage and um, allowed them a moment to be acknowledged by the crowd. And again, you know, there were large sections of the audience that really did not appreciate that. They thought that they were not happy to be reminded of their existence. And um, yeah, I think we, we think about art, I suppose, as being something that has to ha have a certain saltiness, a certain substance and, and politics is just part of it, you know, politics, religion, sexuality, it, it all has to be there because, because to, to rob it of any of that makes it that more, I don't know, um, lacking in 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 the ability to, to to connect with people and hopefully provoke questions and you know art i think is has to be confrontational and we i mean all the artists that we were inspired by understood that and knew that and it was you know people like john lennon um bob marley you know the whole of the, the sort of punk rock movement was was basically a kind of political statement um, some would say too too much of an anarchist statement from some quarters, but uh, we saw the, the kind of the, the social justice aspect, um, anti-racism and, and a sort of more progressive side of it. So we were, we, we really gelled with that. You know, I think something about Ireland, maybe it's, it's because we are a small country, we, we, are therefore forced to kind of look out to the world and with our history of having been colonized, um, it, it gives us a slightly different perspective on social justice and the Irish, I don't know if it's still the case, but certainly in the, in the seventies and eighties, the, the Irish were the most incredible, you know, givers to charitable causes in, in Africa, particularly. Um, so the generosity of the Irish was there. There was something, it, it, it connected deeply on an emotional level, injustice. And uh, we certainly, we inherited that. I would say that's something we could definitely point to the, the Irish sensibility as being, you know, responsible for that. I mean, when we first discovered Amnesty International was through friends in Ireland and, uh, you know, I think, you know, Live Aid and Bob Geldof, that, that's, that would seem to me to be a, a very, typical expression of, of a sort of Irish way of seeing the world. I was reading an article written by um, Ian Walker in The New European, and he said, um, Irishness is about movement, migration, borders and place. And so are you too. And so are the last 30 years for many of us. I found mm. that to be a really interesting way of um, speaking about you too as a as a result of a particular period of time in Ireland, as well as mm. a particular period of time in the world. Yeah, I think it, it's it's probably no longer the case because yeah. technology has 
has kind of made connections that um, has equalized, um, you know, society across the globe. Obviously, I'm talking about now sort of Western connected society. Mm -hmm. But um, back in the time when we were first coming through as a band, that was certainly not the case. I mean, it's hard to really to explain to to a kind of current generation what it was like to grow up in, in Ireland in the late 70s and 80s. And it really was, it was it was a such a, a kind of outpost of, of Europe. And, and, you know, we also had America, which in some ways was, was um, kind of like going to Mars in, in some ways, but it was, it was at least something you knew about through television, but it was, it was really different. Ireland in those days was very, very insular and very different to what it is now. With um, success like yours, you know, um, your private life, your financial life, your religious life will all be up for public comment. Um, how do you live with that? Because ultimately those public comments, some of them are just um, predatory. Some of them are trying to make moral points. Um, who do you listen to and how do you sustain yourself, A, in ignoring what you want to ignore, but B, maybe in taking wisdom in from criticisms that you want to mm. take in? How do you hold that? I think you have to develop a bit of a thick skin. You know, it, it, it was harder in the early days because um, things things would affect you. But I think you make a very good point. Like, you, you can't ignore everything because that, you know, there is actually valid criticisms within the things that have been written about us. And and I think I personally, I, I wanna know, I wanna learn, I wanna, I wanna be better, I wanna get better. So anything that's valid, I, I'm open to. And then there's stuff that's just, just born from a different place. Yeah. It's, not, it's not a genuine criticism. It's, it's just um, coming from a, an attempt to, to demean and dismiss and, um, and I, you know, it's, it's quite easy to sense the spirit of what, what, what you're, you're reading and what you're hearing. And, um, you just have to be selective and try and be as honest as you can be. And if, if, you know, if, if criticism is, is accurate, you know, take it on board. You're listening to the Corrymeela podcast. My name is Padraigo Tuma, and today I'm with The Edge from the Irish band U2. Um, Edge, can I ask you about Van Diemen's Land, that lyric mm -hmm. you wrote about John Boyle O'Reilly, you know, an Irishman sent off to penal servitude in Australia who ended up being an editor of a newspaper in Boston in the US. I'm really curious about that. Is it true that it's the only song that only you sing on all the albums, or are there other hidden ones in some B-side somewhere? I don't think I can think of another one. So I think it is true. It's the, it's the song. And I, I wrote it. I didn't expect to, to sing it, but um, I wrote it almost as an exercise. I mean, I, the story is I, I was with my wife and we were taking the kids up, um, up in the Boyne Valley and, and looking in that area where there's so many megalithic tombs and Newgrange is the most famous one, but there's two in one in Douth and Nauth, and they haven't been developed for you know visitors. So they're they're kind of you can you can just see them from the outside, and they're 
they're fascinating as well, even though you, you can't enter the, the passage itself. So I'm, I'm there and I think it's, I'm actually, I'm going to get confused between the two, but one of them has, um, and I guess an, an 18th century orphanage attached, which is at this point was disused, but on the wall was this plaque commemorating John Boyle O'Reilly saying, this is where he grew up. And, uh, I read the plaque and it described this, uh, writer activist who, um, wrote pamphlets, um, in protest against the, the mistreatment of, of Irish people by the British and how he had been arrested and charged with kind of treason of some sort and, and sentenced to um, servitude in, in Australia and was sent off to Benzines land. So I read a little bit more about him and I got very inspired by this character. You know, he, he, uh, he did, as you say, he, he did go off to Van Diemen's land after a number of years was able to escape and made his way eventually to Boston, ended up um, being the editor of the Boston Globe and uh, had a very long life and career uh, and as a respected journalist in Boston. But he just was, you know, an early social activist really. And, and it just shows you, I suppose, that we have actually made progress. You know, we're no longer jailing dissenters and sending them off to, to, to the colonies. Um, so, so on one hand, he was an inspiration and it, on another hand, it was kind of to, to take a little bit of solace and say, well, okay, people like John Boyle O'Reilly um, were, were ones who kind of actually paid the price personally to, to create progress, but we're now living in a world that's, that's actually benefited from their protest, from from their attempts to to call out, um, you know, injustice and uh, to speak truth to power. So there is progress. There is uh, a reason to to keep doing so. We, you know, as I say, each generation moves things forward a little bit, and and he he just was a character I was really taken by. I, I looked him up before chatting to you. Did you know that after he died, and he died young, um, his wife published a book of his poetry? I somewhere I I think I might have yeah. in the library somewhere. I, I it's a while since I would have um, done my research on John Boyle yeah. O'Reilly. Um, uh, that's a, that's a good uh, that's a good uh, you know reminder to go and search it out. Where do you see the function of hope? Um, in music as well as in wider politics and society? And what gives you hope? Uh, well, I think I'm by nature, I think a, 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 cautious, a cautious optimist. I, I definitely don't believe in a kind of naive, it'll all work out by itself mentality. I think you have to be vigilant and you have to be engaged and you have to, you have to kind of force the hand towards justice and uh, progress, and I think um, I think that's important. But I also am optimistic, and I, I believe that hope is crucial because without it, there is no incentive and inspiration to action. I think um, right now, I think some of the biggest major concerns are environmental. I think uh, we saw 
unfortunately with with COVID-19 is sort of um, th those issues slipping from the headlines, but they will be back front and center as soon as um, COVID-19 is, is behind us. Um, but I think it's important to maintain hope in the face of, of particularly those challenges which seem right now to be a lost cause. You know, if you, if you listen to the narrative coming from the environmental um, body, it's, it's, it seems right now that they've lost the, the hopeful vision. And I think that that's a shame. I think we should be more uh, attempting to find solutions than we are just to pointing out the problems that we face. And that's the balance. One has to be real. One has to be honest and truthful. But I think to lose hope is, is to allow despondency to take over. And I think that's that's the thing that we can't allow to happen. We've got to we've got to motivate and inspire action. And that's I think where you two would would, would generally try and get engaged is is in something hopeful and positive and and towards a solution. As a band, like you've stayed together for forty six years, four friends, you've mm. bound to have learned all kinds of things about collaboration and conflict and communication and space from each other and you know, working back together. Um, what do you think um, you've learned about conflict in the context of all mm. of that um, work? Well, I think a couple of things. Um, cooperation. I mean, there's, there's, there's great books written on cooperation. There's, there's one by a fellow, Michael Axelrod, I think, on the evolution of cooperation, which is a scientific book, but it basically explains the need and the benefits of cooperation. And what he talks about is how cooperation is, is when the joint effort rewards the individual to a higher extent. And so cooperation exists in most avenues of life. Um, society is, is one giant kind of organ of cooperation, but it can break down very easily if um, if people feel betrayed or um, taken advantage of or like they're not being treated fairly. But I think the other thing is to to um, to not leave out of that equation is compromise. And I think compromise, and I'm sure you've realized this in your work in reconciliation, compromise is kind of got a bad rap you know people see compromise as as a weakness a kind of a lack of resolve a lack of 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 you know determination but in fact i see it the opposite i think compromise is where you it, it involves grace it involves wisdom it involves um empathy and appreciation for the other person's position and i think if you you can combine the right measure of compromise with that spirit of cooperation. I think that's that's where you can reap huge benefits individually. And you, you, I so often see that breaking down where people aren't able to compromise their, they, they and, and therefore their cooperation stops functioning and, and then everyone suffers. And it's, it's kind of really frustrating to see that happen, particularly when it's, a, it's, you know, great rock and roll band that you realize fell apart because of relationships and trust breaking down um but you know it's it's not to say it's easy to to get that balance and to have the 
the self-confidence and the and the and the trust in each other that you're actually prepared to to compromise feeling like you're not necessarily always going to you know see the benefit and you might in the short term feel like you you have been um not accounted for or taken advantage of but that the collective wins and that's that's the thing we we always talk about the collective ego of you two that we have allowed our individual egos to be subsumed into the band ego and and so if, if the action helps the band no matter who's sort of getting the the credit or who's doing the work or whatever it doesn't really matter as long as we're the u2 collective wins then we all win that's that's basically how it works yeah. but that's that's a kind of that's an easy thing to say actually to, to make it happen is very challenging at times um you know if the music thing doesn't work out for you there's a job for you at corimila <laughs> well i you know i i suppose i don't know if you've ever come across the the enneagram i have which yeah we, we came across it so um we we recently came across it and um i was told um well actually not told i i realized myself i was a nine and the nines are the peacemakers <laughs> so so maybe you're not wrong <laughs> <laughs> well even from a young age you were finding ways to speak in different accents to um you know be understood that's a very interesting um technology that you landed on there maybe you're still doing that <laughs> i'm sure i am in some way <laughs> And, and that sense of belonging, you know, like, you know, if that's in jeopardy, you, you, you know, as a kid, you kind of, you have to employ all, all your talents to, uh, to kind of fit in. That becomes an imperative. Yeah. Um, what is your curiosity about reconciliation? Like when we met, you were really interested in talking about Corimila, mm. but more so thinking, let's talk about reconciliation. What, what, what interests you about that? I think specifically in the Irish context, because um, obviously growing up um, in Wales, my parents had no sectarian kind of inclinations at all. Um, when we got to Ireland, I hung around with people from all different backgrounds. Never occurred to me to, to, to look upon people in any different way based on their their religious persuasions. So my mom used to say she would occasionally, because of the church, she'd end up going up to the north as, as part of some church outing. And she said on a number of occasions, you know, at the end of a long, lovely social occasion with her, you know, northern Irish um, fellow Presbyterians, she, she would, out of pure curiosity, she just broached the subject of the United Ireland. And, you know, like, like we live in Dublin, it's, lovely down there people are lovely it's 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 very like up here like what exactly is the fear what's and she said without fail it would be like a portcullis had come down it was like the conversation had totally ground to a halt it was beyond consideration beyond imagination the idea of of, of a united ireland and she wasn't advocating it she wasn't suggesting it she wasn't trying to sell it she was just curious about why it was so fear inducing why it was so out of the question um because i suppose you know identity hadn't been an issue you know to her we were living in dublin but but she she had no 
misgivings about her own traditions and ideas. I was my making my own way, I suppose. But I, it left me feeling, wow, you know, I am I'm in this position where I'm not really I don't have a polarity in this regard. I'm not. There's no faith of my father's involved in my my history. I'm totally free of any of that. So I was just curious. I was like, I I'd love to fully understand what it's like to be of a nationalist persuasion and really like not just present day, but generations of nationalists or conversely generations of loyalists. It's, it's, it's foreign to me. So I'm just, I'm, I was always curious to, to know more and to try and get a better understanding of, of what drove it and what prevented people from moving beyond it more, more to the point. Well, I know I speak for um, my colleagues at Corrymeela to say thanks for your support and curiosity as well. Well, I just want to say congratulations to you and the whole team and Corrymeela, the fact that it exists and, and you know, that it is non-denominational, it was originally set up by um, Ray David and uh, he was a Presbyterian, but, you know, there's no sectarian polarity at all there and it's it's doing some amazing work um i'm such a fan and so just thanks for all the hard work and uh, i'm sure at times it must feel like really hard to 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 see the 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 sort of the 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 benefits on a societal basis but um the fact that it exists is like a beacon you know it's like it's so important i think really really crucial and uh, yeah, may it long may it continue. Edge, thanks very much for your time and for your generosity in this conversation. My pleasure. Our guest this week was the legendary musician The Edge, the guitarist from U2. Don't forget to listen right to the end when Edge has some fascinating answers to our very short story questions. Thanks for listening to the Cory Miller podcast. I'm Padraig Tuma, and I'll be back with another episode next week. The Cory Miller podcast comes to you with the generous support of our funders, the Henry Luce Foundation, the Community Relations Council of Northern Ireland, the Fund for Reconciliation of the Irish Government, and the support of the Friends of Cory Miller who give monthly or annually. If you enjoy this podcast and have time to leave us a written review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, we would be delighted. And if you ever want to get in touch with us, you can email welcome at corrymila.org. The Corrymila podcast is a fanfan production. The researcher and producer is Emily Rawling. The podcast was mixed by Fra Sands at Safe Place Studios. Could you tell us about a time when your national identity felt important to you, Edge? There's been many times where I've had to ask myself, who am I from a national point of view? Because growing up in Ireland, I clearly have adopted Ireland as my home and and culturally speaking, I'm, I am Irish. When my dad would turn on the rugby matches <laughs> and it was Wales versus Ireland 
and he was cheering with 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 great enthusiasm for the Welsh team. I I used to get confused, and and so so I'd say my sense of nationalism is for sure Irish, but um, I would say it does get knocked a little bit. Not a, not any other sport, but rugby is where I I, I fall into a kind of dichotomy of um, of identity. <laughs> uh, and what three people from one of your cultures, um, present or past, would you want to be in a lockdown bubble with? Roger Casement would be one of them for sure. I think he's a fascinating um, character and his, I, I believe he was one of the great Irishmen historically on a global stage. I mean, his his work in the Congo and his work in South America and the Amazon, he was knighted for that work, deservedly so. I know he had misgivings at the time whether he should accept the knighthood, but he, he was knighted for a very good reason because he really, I think, basically kick-started the whole universal human rights movement. I would say Flann O'Brien <laughs> because we all need a good laugh and I think I am such a massive fan of everything he wrote. I mean, the, the, you know, I think when I think of, of Ireland, I think of good times and humor and, you know, no better personification of, of Irish humor than Flann O'Brien. And Eileen Gray, I think she'd be amazing because Eileen Gray is sort of an unsung Irish hero. She was heavily involved in art and design um, at the beginning of the 20th century. Many people would say that she's she kind of was was largely kind of behind some of the, the ideas that became modernism in terms of art, uh, design, and and architecture, and uh, influenced Le Corbusier and and a lot of the Bauhaus people, and, and and she was very very celebrated in France. In fact, a bit like Sam Beckett, I think um, the French thought she was French. When was the first time you read or saw or heard something and thought, "That's me." Yeah, I, I have to say it would be music, um, and you know I'd always loved music as a fan. You know, growing up and went to concerts at, from quite a young age. You know, went to see Rory Gallagher as a thirteen-year-old, and then Lizzie and Horse Lips from about fourteen. But the first time I actually saw a band and I went, okay. That is me, that I can do that, was the jam on top of the pops. I just, and it's funny, I, it's, uh, Bono had the same realization. It, because Top of the Pops was the only show where you got to see live music uh, during those years. The old girl whistle test, I guess you could also, but that was on late night and we didn't get to see that often. But the Top of the Pops was a kind of prime time show where you got to see bands uh, occasionally. Mostly it was not very interesting pop but occasionally something great and when the jam came on I just got punk rock in three minutes it just I was like okay that's me I'm in it was the combination of the commitment and the 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 intensity of the of the feeling in, expressed in the music but also the fact that it was it was a kind of garage band sound it was like we could make that sound it demanded commitment and intensity over musicianship and and that, that was such an inspiration for us and for me particularly personally. What are you reading at the moment? It's the last question. Uh, totally out of curiosity. I'm actually reading 
some history about um, a fascinating poet that grew up in America in um, the end of the 18th century. Her name is Phyllis Wheatley. Phyllis was brought to America as an African slave, age seven years old, I think. They're not absolutely sure how old she was, and they don't know her African name. They don't know exactly where she came from, but she was put up for sale at the end of Boston Harbor in uh, 1765, thereabouts. She was bought by a family called the Wheatleys, and the name of the slave ship was Phyllis. The Wheatleys decided they would name her Phyllis Wheatley. She was brought up, and for reasons that are hard to fathom based on the, the norms of society at that time, she was educated and she was, um, she seemed to take to learning so naturally and with such obvious intellectual sort of powers that the, the weekly family just kept upping her levels. So she didn't get just a basic education as most women got in New England in that era. She started to get a full classical education and she was being taught Latin and Greek. She read extensively, she read voraciously, and then age 15, she started writing poetry. So Phyllis Weekly starts to write about what's happening in America in the lead up to the American Revolution. And she decided, or her, her owner, Mary Weekly, I think decided to send some of these poems into local newspapers. So she starts getting published and she's writing all kinds of things about the, the sort of nascent revolution so Phyllis Wheatley ended up getting audiences with George Washington. She met with Benjamin Franklin and she was a slave. It's just such a fascinating story. She she did go to London. She got published in, in London and setting foot on English soil, she actually had her freedom, but decided to go back to America to reestablish her enslavement. I believe because she believed that America, that whatever the revolution would, would, would end up becoming would involve emancipation, would involve a kind of promised land for African-Americans and she wanted to be part of that. That belief in America is so inspiring because right now it seems like America's going through such a dark period. And it's kind of, some, some seem to have lost sight of what it was set up to be, which is the beacon on the hill. To know that this young African girl believed in it to that extent is, is really inspiring. Edge, thank you very much for giving us your time and coming on the Corrie Miller podcast. My pleasure, Podrick. <laughs>